On December 13th, 2020, Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf sat down to record the 179th episode of the Coot Street Podcast for 2020. And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Hello. It's so lonely in the Motel 6. Nobody travels anymore. Nobody checks into motels. It's like a haunted house story. But oh, here come we on, are. let's be honest. The Gershon room's been shuttered. You know, yeah. the piano's been carted away. The bar's been sold off for extra cash. It's all done, Gary. There's no Gershon room. The Couture at Motel 6 is probably hosting COVID you know, pet people who, are, who need to be quarantined due to travel. And that's it. Let me invite you to do something which you did probably seven or eight years ago on this. But I, I get queries about this. People want to know why we named this the Cood Street Podcast and what Cood Street has to do with it. Because there is a Cood Street there in Perth, is, not, is there not? There are indeed three Cood Streets. There was a, a, a Mr. Cood who was, for reasons I forget right now, important to the founding of the state of West Australia. And in the suburb that I lived, there was a street, Cood Street, which had a cafe on it. And it was right beside where I lived back in 1997 or so. And I decided in 1999 that I was going to launch my own nonfiction magazine. And I was sitting with a friend of mine, Russell B. Farr, the publisher of Ticonderoga Publications. Uh And I was saying I was going to do this nonfiction magazine and I needed a title. And he said, quite frankly, honestly, sort of sarcastically, you could call it the Cood Street Review of Science Fiction. Uh And I went, that's actually really good. I will call it the Cood Street Review of Science Fiction. And I released one volume of this at the Worldcon in 1999 in Melbourne and then went on to do other things because I just lost focus on it. But I kept the name. That rolled on through some other things. So when it came to a name for the podcast, it was like, might as well be the Cood Street Podcast. Makes perfect sense to me, and I certainly had no objection to it because it sounded like, even to me, excuse me, I accidentally... I accidentally touched my wine glass against the microphone, those of you who are wondering. <laughs> but um, it sounded to me like something mysterious. It sounded to me like the beginning of a club story of some sort. Um, and the, 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 the Coot Street Irregulars gathered in the Motel 6 in the winter of 1959. <laughs> well, the thing is, you, you don't have the image, unfortunately, of the of the cafe, because it's exactly the kind of thing, at least here, where groups of my friends and I would gather and we would sit for hours and hours and hours talking about life, science fiction, movies, all kinds of things. So in some ways, the kind of conversation that you and I have is not completely alien to the exact kind of conversation that that, that environment encouraged. It was a cafe conversation, that kind of cafe intellectual tradition, if you like, that stretches back you know, in, into the 18th century. Sort right, of and, and that here in the States ended a year ago. <laughs> yes, and only very debatably ever arose on this podcast at any point right. at all. Well, we we will we'll at at one point return to doing podcasts. I think we did one or two podcasts actually from bars or from dealers we have. and cons and so forth. So it's not it's not enormously successful because of the ambient noise. But yes, it's it, it's nice. It's nice to have friends to sort of do it with, and I'm sure we'll find some theatrically appropriate way to do it. Like if we can get to a convention, maybe we'll find a thing. We'll t- take a table in the dealer's room and just broadcast all day with passersby or something. Who knows? Who knows? But who knows when that will be? Uh, sometime, yeah, not maybe, soon. maybe by the end of 2021. But I'm a. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, hey. Hmm? I'm glad you mentioned that. I've got a thing to mention. You've got a thing. Quite surprised. Think. First of all, hello, Cood Streeters. I know that you are the kind of people that, like Gary and I, nominate and vote for the Hugo Awards, don't we? 
Yes, we do. The deadline to get registered for next year's Hugo Awards is December the 31st, a mere two or three weeks from today. You need at least a supporting membership to Discon if you're going to nominate for next year's Hugos. So sign up, people, if that's something that you want to do. Also, I was fascinated to see a poll put out by the good people at Discon, which is the 2021 Washington, D.C. World Science Fiction Convention, asking people, would they rather have a virtual Worldcon in August or a physical Worldcon a week and a half before Christmas? Really? And I want you to get your head around. This, I mentioned this to, to Marianne, my wife, uh-huh. and, she, and she, even though she's had a long history of the field, she's like, I don't know why that's a deal. But I'm going like, can you imagine the Hugos not being presented till Christmas? That would be uh, a considerable change in, in, in people's psyches, I suppose. And would you would you go to would would everybody travel on like I think it's like the weekend like December eighteenth kind of thing they're talking about? Would everybody travel to Worldcon then? I don't know if people would travel internationally. That's a week before the real horrible travel crush occurs uh, with the holidays. I know exactly what they're thinking. They're they're trying to do the math on how long it will take uh, herd immunity to reach seventy percent because of the vaccines and so forth, and they're guessing that by late fall. There's a good chance to have one in person. Uh, the problem is the, the, prob- the problem they have more for people like you than for people like me uh, is people have to make plans further in advance than a couple of weeks. So, that- well, I think probably my guess is, and I'm, this is me purely guessing because they've not talked about it publicly, and I have no connection to any backroom information. I've just seen these two pieces of information. It's possible they'll wait till part through the first quarter of next year to make a decision, and then give people plenty of time to plan. Because if it is December, let's face it. I mean. I don't think realistically internationally you're going to be. I'm, I'm going to have the opportunity to even make a decision to July or August. I am very doubtful that I'll be able to go to anything outside of Australia next year at all. Mm. Truthfully, I think it's very unlikely. Particularly every time my government talks about opening international borders, it's getting pushed back and pushed back. And the government, when they talk about when will international travel resume, it's like, well, we thought it would be March, and then it's like July, and who knows now, right? So. If it were to be a world science fiction convention in DC, and actually, I'd kind of love to try and see what it would be like in, at, near Christmas because the mood would be, fanta- fast, fa- be fantastic. Um, it'd be a really interesting thing to do. So I, I don't we'll see. I mean, my guess is they're going to go virtual because I suspect, I, I suspect what you're because there's less risk involved in that. And and I think mm. I think a lot of people are getting used to virtual conventions. There are people who mm. really do it better than I do. I mean, I've, I've been involved. I was involved a little bit with WorldCon and with World Fantasy, and had had a good time in the few things I was involved. But I I I've talked to other people who really set aside the weekend, set aside several hours, looked through the schedule, went to a bunch of panels, went to a bunch of parties, and uh, and 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 really had a good time at it. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that as people learn how to do that, uh, there's going to be uh, not necessarily a s- sympathy for virtual conventions from, from now on, but as we've said before, I think there's going to be an almost uh, absolute demand for a virtual component to any convention from now on. Oh, I think it, it is now, if it's, if it's not baked in, it's close to being baked in. You know, I saw the value of the fringe convention that ran around even the online New Zealand Worldcon, and it was a it was really interesting. Mm. And I, there was the, the future uh, uh, future online convention, future science fiction online convention that was done. That was really interesting. I didn't get to any of the world fantasy panels, unfortunately, because of timing. Uh, and timing really does work sort of bitterly against you when you are right. on the other side of the world from a Worldcon. But 
when it's kind of set free, it's really interesting. And in fact, the benefit to something like the fringe convention that was run during Worldcon was it didn't happen during the standard programming. So it sort of rounded out this 24 hour rolling kind of event. So there's that. And I think, a lot, and also I think a lot of people who have, who have travel issues, who have financial issues, who have, uh, you know, uh, uh, disability issues, they are included in a way they wouldn't be readily at least. Exactly. Because of the online component. So I think you know, like this sort of segues into something we didn't know we were going to talk about. We're going to talk, the, you know, you asked me, leading up to this, would we talk about the year in review? 2020, the flaming trash fire mad thing that we've just lived through. And maybe we will a bit because this sort of segues to that. It's like conventions changed in 2020. I don't think there was a single major in-person you know, in -person convention all year long anywhere. Or if there was, I missed it go by. I think Boscone happened in February, if I'm not mistaken. I wasn't there. But I think that I've talked to a number of people or heard from a number of people who said that was the last convention they went to. And, of course, things just shut down within a week or two after that, I believe. Yeah. And this isn't to say the other events didn't go ahead in some form, but that was that. So, you know, sort of that flowed on to people at home, people creating work that they might not otherwise have created because they had that pandemic shut-in time, uh, as well as the, those who sort of worked less for the same reason. Mm -hmm. And there have been all kinds of strange things. I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking yesterday, one of the effects, and I'm not going to say it's just the, you know, the year we've been through, I think it has amplified something. The world had lived through a broadband revolution that it hadn't really thought about in some places. You know, um, we were consuming media faster and you know, at higher resolution than ever before, but then suddenly we realized, well, actually we could work from home for this because of that ability that we had. And what it's done, one of the effects it's had, I think, is it's made science, the science fiction and publishing worlds both more and less diverse. Interesting. In what way less? Okay. Well, I'll start with the, the former oh, first, okay. if I may. We were already on a trend to become more diverse. I think that some of the issues that were highlighted during the year, and most definitely critically, the whole Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. uh, actually amplified urgency towards inclusion. And there's been a lot more uh, a, lo a lot more support. I think we've got a lot more support and action uh, coming through for various kinds of inclusion in terms of reaching out to writers, reaching out to artists, getting their work involved in publications. I've seen more Afrofuturism and African futurism projects than I've ever seen before this year. Mm, that's true. Uh, uh, and more interest and focus in international work. Our own recommended reading list, not to preview it, is likely to feature novels published well outside what Locust might have considered in broad broad terms in, in the past, and that is enriching the field. However, the publishing world is becoming less diverse, and the marketing and sales world is becoming less diverse, not in terms of the demographic makeup of the people, but the structures of the businesses. You know, uh, Here in Australia, they know, the, the, the surveys have shown, something like one and a half million of a country of 23 million, I think it is, have now shopped online regularly this year who had never shopped online before. Really? That's yes. Online retailers are, have made an enormous amount of money during this year. Amazon, the primary uh, online retailer for books, has increased its market share during the year. It is a bigger thing, and it is going to continue to grow almost certainly by after this year. No matter how we look at it, that has 
undercut for all sorts of complex reasons the viability of a lot of in-person bookstores. Some are surviving, but a lot of in, in, independent bookstores have either closed or are in a lot of you know distress mm-hmm. at the moment. Chains are struggling, so there's that happening. At the same time, we've had these mergers, including the massive merger at the end of the year that was just, that's just going through right now that involves Simon and & Schuster and everybody becoming part of, I think, it's Penguin Random House. So you end up with one enormous publisher controlling a huge portion of the market, and that's led to reductions in editorial staff and so on and so forth. So what you're getting is you're getting fewer people selecting books to go into fewer imprints through publishing mm-hmm. houses into fewer retail outlets kind of thing to simplify and that ha- that ends up undercutting things like the midlist, where a lot of writers that we might support uh, exist. It uh, makes it, I think, in some ways harder for for stuff to get out into the world. It comes, you know, it, it comes down to like in terms of finding an audience, you, 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 it may be more important that you know how to construct and manage book, you know, online bookstore algorithms and metadata than it does anything else. You know, so it's gonna, it's it, it, it's a strange time. It even reflects. It's reflected in. Uh, in the real estate market, in an odd way, I was reading this this morning that both in in New York, for example, um, on on um, Fifth Avenue in Chicago, on Michigan Avenue, there are major uh, vacancies in in retail space. We have a three story high gap that shut down on Michigan Avenue is shutting down in, uh, at the end of the month. And while all this retail space and office space is is is, is just going begging, warehouse space is now at a premium. In other words, mm. the shift has been from uh, shops that carry goods and sell them to people and from offices that have people come into the office has shifted from that to uh, to giant warehouses where, uh, where these enormous robot-like things. The, the thing that struck me as really odd, and I don't know why this struck me uh, at all, is that I'm, I'm visualizing future commerce as looking like the last scene in Citizen Kane with these giant uh, 19... Admittedly, this is 1940, but still, these giant warehouses where more and more things are just being piled up and piled up and piled up, uh, and it's it's kind of a sad thing. But you, the the, the change in, in in commerce brings up another issue, which I, I thought we ought to mention, um, yeah. and that is that uh, in the last in the last week or so, we've lost uh, two important rights. Three, let's see, three important. Well. Well, well, no, no, sorry. Certainly, two, two important writers, but cer- certainly more that in terms of number of people who are important to the to the field. We've had we've had a, a lot of sad things happen this year. But you're going to talk about people. I was going to mention. Uh, well, the first the, the first person I was going to mention because it's relevant to this conversation is Ben Bolvo, uh, who I had only met a couple of times. I cannot claim to have known him at all. Uh, I did read several of his novels, and they were classic, old fashioned, astounding novels, except uh, for two things that I think. He's possibly not recognized uh, for as much as he ought to be. One is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, all of his Hugo Awards came as editor. Um, And I think that he uh, deserves credit uh, when he took over the editorship of Analog initially for basically having saved that magazine from, let's say, late stage Campbell crankiness and turning it back into (laughs) a magazine again. Um, And then, of course, there was Omni. Uh, and I, th- I think he gave Ellen Datlow her first job. Uh, so as an editor, he's had an enormous amount of it. It was not her first job. Uh, no, no, it was Robert Sheckley, I thought, who picked her up at, at okay, Omni. Okay, but it, it, he was at, at anyway. He got the he got the thing going at at Omni as well. So he, my point is, he had a lot of influence as an editor. His novels, I don't think, uh, got read, and I don't think they get 
read or discussed much anymore, uh, even though they were perfectly competent, and I remember reading some of them. But there are two, there, there's, there's an aspect of Boba's work that's completely overlooked uh, and that I found fascinating. He was a pretty good satirist, and he was a good, yeah. pretty good satirist of how industries work. And the two novels that are the least discussed novels of his, because they're both in many ways badly dated, was a novel called Cyberbooks, which was probably, I'm going to say the early 80s. And it was an, it, it's, it's really an attempt to describe what the, cyber, what, what the e-book industry would be like. And he got a lot of it right, uh, surprisingly. I mean, it's basically about a guy who invents what amounts to a Kindle. Uh, but the book itself is a satire of everything that's going on in, was going on in the publishing industry back there. It's, 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 it's a corporate satire. Um, the other novel, which is also a corporate satire and is now thought of simply because of its association with Harlan Ellison, was a novel mm-hmm. called The Starcrossed, which was his novelization, really, of his and Ellison's experiences with that really pretty dire TV series called Star Lost. Um, yeah. And that is a satire of, um, of, of the television industry. And we tend to look at these things in terms of science fiction. In science fiction, they're not really anything special, but he really had a good take on what the publishing industry would do when ebooks became a thing. And I don't I doubt it's cyberbooks cyberbooks is even in print because the technology for it is so I'm sure antiquated. Yeah, yeah, you may be right. Uh the other one of the other people that we lost this week was Richard Corbin. Yes. Who was a you know longtime science fiction artist whose work I first encountered on the cover of Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell, believe it or not. That was him. Uh, and was an iconic image that sort of chased him, I'm sure, around the world. But he also did, you know, covers for everybody, everybody from Edgar Rice Burroughs to Philip K. Dick to Harlan Ellison to Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft. And, and you know, was a, ma- a major figure. One of the things I, when I used to visit Philip Jose Farmer in Peoria, he was he had been friends with Corbin, I gather, and he had a good collection of of some of those, uh, especially some of the pen and ink uh, things that were very, very mordant and very funny. And, you know, in, in that group of somewhat um, somewhat macabre ar- artists uh, that includes people from Gay and Wilson all the way down to H.R. Um, Giger, I guess, he had his own style of creepiness that was very distinctive. And I remember, partly because I got a lecture on this from, from Phil Farmer, uh, partly because the, the, the style was could be cartoonish at times, but was very, very distinctive uh, and, and recognizable. And once I learned to recognize a Corbin painting, I think I could recognize one anywhere now. Sure. Um, that's absolutely true. You know, the, uh, there are a number of, uh, of science fiction writers, particularly, in fact, who had a lot of impact on a particular, you know, doing popular cover art, mm-hmm. which ended, then, then, then you could trace, you know, when you see that, that style onwards. I mean, we all know that. Kelly Frears did well, a piece that ended up being used as a cover of a Queen album. Yeah. Michael Whalen did the Jacksons album and so on. And that, that spread their art in a way, though it wasn't the highest thing. But a major, major loss. I mean, uh, and of course, the other one I th- person I think you were going to mention was that uh, Phyllis Eisenstein passed away this week. Phyllis Eisenstein passed away. She had been having neurological problems for over a year. I saw her. As a matter of fact, I, I'm thinking. Uh, last year at uh, at Wendycon was the last time I saw her, and she was this was just before she went into the hospital, I gather. Uh, but I'd known her for decades, and she was one of those people that had a, a lot of influence uh, in a lot of ways that that didn't get recognized. I mean, clearly um, the story is probably all over the web now about uh, about her having talked George Martin into putting dragons into the Game of Thrones, one of the Game of Thrones novels. I think is 
dedicated to her. She was part of a group of writers that met briefly here for when, when George lived in Chicago. They included Algis Budras, they included Fred Pohl once or twice, Gene Wolfe was there. She taught at Columbia College in the same teaching position that Budras and, and Gene Wolfe had taught in, uh, and was by all accounts a very effective teacher. Um, and her uh, first series of stories, which I think were all published in FNSF and then published in a collection from Arkham House, if I'm not mistaken, Alaric, the, 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 the Minstrel, about a kind of teleporting minstrel, they were really solid. And there were some other very solid uh, short pieces. From, uh, I think yeah. partly after having written a couple of novels, um, started producing less. Uh, there was one story called Subworld, which I still like a lot, one of these sort of subterranean hidden society things. Um, but I think between uh, between her need to work for Leo Burnett Advertising Agency and teach part-time and various other things, she wasn't able to write as much during the last 20 years. But, uh, but she was somebody who was a key part of science fiction fandom for a long time in the Chicago group of fans, which I was always marginal to, but which uh, certainly has distinguished folks like Stephen Silver at the center of it, are going to miss her enormously because she had been one of the... Uh, go-to people in, in Chicago fandom for, for decades. I probably met her in the, I'm going to say, 70s. Yeah. Well, look, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did the Crude Street gift guide. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much that removes the need to talk about the year in review, since we would have talked about many of the same books. But do you feel ready to talk about the year in review for 2020? It's something that's in the in the air right now very much you know, for, for you know, us at Locus and elsewhere. I had a thought about that. I, I, I started because, as you know, those of us who work for Locus need to start writing up something. Um, I don't know what. And the first thing I thought, I started looking at the things I'd read this year, and I thought I had a pattern going. And it's one of those things where if it had been a good enough pattern, I would have made it work for the whole year. And the pattern was this, that at least a couple of months of the year, maybe every month in the year, there was a high-profile book that got all the attention it deserved, and there was another book that didn't get as much attention as we thought it was going to be. I'll give you an example. Um, In March, uh, the most, possibly the most high profile science fiction novel to come out that month was Nora Jemison's, N.K. Jemison's The City We Became. Enormous amounts. Same month saw the publication of Paul McCauley's War of the Maps, which I think is another one of the finest novels of the year uh, and which got relatively little attention outside the UK. And I don't really know how much attention it got within the UK. Yeah. Now, I mean, do, do you see you see that, what that's the pattern? I mean, do you have an explanation for that, or do you just think that happens to be a vagary of the publishing universe? Um, I'm wondering. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering about really the bandwidth for publicizing books. Uh, you know, is, is is a big book like that, or another one that comes to mind? Uh, if you go back to January, uh, the big thing in January was was William Gibson's agency. You can't ignore William Gibson's agency, and it's really good. Um, yeah. But another book that got a lot of attention initially the same month um, was uh, Simon Jimenez's The Vanished Birds, which I also thought was terrific. Uh, my question is, do some books suck all the oxygen out of the room during a particular period of publishing? I don't know. I think, like, that, well, at least within the, the sort of the – you know the, the contained world of science fiction, maybe, but not too much, because there's an awful lot of different discussions going on. Well, I think it's whether we're paying attention to them. So you know the conversation that is 
in January, here's agency by William Gibson, read this, read this, isn't necessarily impacted by a conversation about another January or February title. And, you know, it's interesting because there's a real, there's a reasonably healthy variety of science fiction fantasy novels published. I don't think it was a spectacular you know, year for, if you will, core science fiction at short lengths, but it seemed to be a, good, a fairly diverse year for science fiction as a whole. I mean, if you look at the best science fiction novels of the year, you know, there's that sort of cool futurism of, of William Gibson. Right. There's the almost sarcastic, cozy science fiction of Martha Wells, the climate fiction of Stan Robinson, you know, the Macaulay book you talked about, space right. operas from people like Kate Elliott and, Bo- and um, Alistair Reynolds. Um, so there's climate, there's sh- short fiction, very much actually fix- fixated on one topic, really, which I'll, tr- I'll come back to a little bit later. But there was a, a kind of real variety of books that were being shouted about by a variety of people. And that was the interesting thing. It wasn't all just the usual names. I mean, a William Gibson novel, a Stan Robinson novel, always going to be get a lot of discussion in the space that, we, that we're in. And the same with Martha Wells, who's become mm-hmm. a, a huge name in our field. Uh, but you know, you also get to see people who maybe ha- get less attention. The and and Charnocks, the the Linda Nagatas, right, and so on. So that's been interesting. It's also been quite an interesting year for fantasy. When I look at the books that are getting most bandwidth within the people that I, you know, amongst the, amongst the people I talk to, uh-huh. they're really quite smart literary books. You know, the Sunken Lands Begin to Rise Again by my Mike. Harrison, right. you mentioned N.K. Jemison's The City We Became, Perinacy by Susanna Clark, which was a surprise title for the year and one that the people who've read it have raved about in great ways. Uh, Alex Harrow's second novel, The Once and Future Witches, Tamsin Muir's Harrow the Ninth, Rebecca Rowanhorse's Black Sun. Mm-hmm. All of these books have been quite different from one another, but have managed to seize the conversation at some point during the year. It's been a really interesting year for science fiction and fantasy novel length. Well, I, I, you may be, I'm, I'm certain you're right, because there is such a broad range of discussion across the web and across podcasts like ours, um, online zines and that sort of thing. I guess what I'm thinking when I talk about oxygen is what gets, what gets attention beyond the usual suspects. Um, for example, uh, you mentioned the Alex Harrow novel, and I, I don't know why I got fixated on why things came out in the same month, but same month as that was, was uh, P. Jelly Clark's Ring Shout. Um, mm-hmm. which, which it seems to me be, is getting a great deal of attention and deserves a great deal of attention. It's a very different kind of book. And for that matter, it's a very different kind of book from any other novel published this year. Um, but is it known outside of our circle of yes. genre readers? It is? Yes. Okay. Good. To, good to I think Ring Shout has – I mean, Ring Shout has been – I think it was optioned for television just recently, I think they just announced. And uh, it has b- b- got major mainstream attention. It's been in the big newspapers, all that kind of thing. So, in fact, there are two – novellas published by tor.com this year that i had nothing to do with so i i hope i can appear at least mildly objective given my connection to tor.com which really bookended a whole conversation you know there's toshi on Yabuchi's book yeah. which came out in like february uh riot baby and then ring shout which is like i think september october i october. think uh from p jelly clark those two books in a sense help encapsulate a really vibrant uh, conversation in, in that space and the whole Black Lives Matters kind of space and everything else, as well as being incredible pieces of fiction. Uh, I mean, uh, Riot ba- uh, Baby is one that a book is going to stay with me for 
years. I think it's an incredible piece of fiction by, by Onyo Butchie. And I, I was knocked out by Ringshout and can't wait for what will be his debut novel, his, his full, debut full-length novel, which is coming out in March, April of next year. Well, um, I find this encouraging. Like I say, you may be more plugged in than I am. But let me, you mentioned Piranesi, for example. I'm going to go back to my month-by-month thing. Um, and a lot of this has to do with who publishes what. Now, obviously, uh, and, and who's expecting what? You mentioned the Susanna Clark thing. People had been waiting for, what, 20 years and expecting something completely different, uh, which may have disappointed people who wanted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jonathan Clark and Mr. Strange, uh, just some variation on the original. Uh, but it was really delightful. But it came out the same month as a book which I liked a lot, a uh, very poetic fantasy by R.B. Lindbergh called The Four Profound Weaves. And it's a lovely, Fantastic book. stylistic Fantastic. it's just gorgeous. Uh, it, it came uh, from Tachyon, which has been having a really good year uh, in, 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 in these things. But again, it's, uh, it's, it's a fantasy which may actually have, uh, uh, the marketing may not have done it too much of a favor where it talked about uh, the full first full-length work set in her bird universe, which I had no idea what her bird universe was, uh, what his, what their bird universe, excuse me. Um, and I looked it up. I, I, I read a couple of their uh, short pieces. It's fine, but you don't need to know anything about R.B. Lindbergh's bird universe to appreciate this novel. Yeah. It's an absolutely lovely fantasy novel, which I think um, has been somewhat overlooked. Maybe not. Uh, I'd like to think it's not as overlooked as I suspect, but who knows? Well, I guess we're, we're going to, one of the interesting things is, I mean, I, I hope it is sold well and I would join you in recommending it, but you really, really never know how these books are received until well into, into next year sort of thing. It, you know, I hope people will seek it out on some of these other books we're talking about. Um, I, I know that it, it always sounds, I think when people are recommending books and particularly for awards and that kind of thing, there's that tendency to get that whole slew towards worthiness as opposed to necessarily enjoyability. There's a lot of popular fiction that quite often doesn't tie in or uh, the same way. But it's interesting because even though the M. John Harrison book is a very literary book, it's been popular, won a major, major literary award just Mm -hmm. recently. Nora Jemison's book has sold spectacularly. It's a major bestseller and has had an enormous response to it. You know, there has been, I I think, Naomi Novik's book, Deadly Education, similarly, has, has had terrific sales and the, you know the joe abercrombie i mean the trouble with peace by joe abercrombie was one of the fantasies of the year yes. as uh last year's book was and they always sell very well as being extraordinarily good um probably what one thing that surprised me a little is i would have expected to see based on the way things have been over the last four or five years more readily identifiable terrific first novels Mm-hmm. There were some. There was a handful. Darcy Little Badger's Elazo came out, which is one of the highlights of the year, as did the Simon Jimenez book you mentioned, The Vanished Birds, mm-hmm. and Micaiah Johnson's The Space Between Worlds. But there was less consensus about standout books. I mean, Premier Muhammad had a terrific book out from uh, Rebellion called Beneath the Rising earlier in the year that deserved a lot more attention than it got at the time. Uh, I spoke uh, during the 10 Minutes with series to Andrea Stewart, whose debut, The Bone Shard Daughter, came out. And it was a terrific book that also deserved more discussion. Um, and I know you've read uh, Gautam Bhatia's The Wall, which was the first, a okay, debut. Yeah, yeah, and the f- which is, is uh, okay, it apparently got a fair amount of attention in India, but it's a good example. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely original, extreme. it's very literary, it's very... Uh, 
even legalistic. I mean, who would have expected an epic fantasy to end in a convincing courtroom drama, which it really does. <laughs> um, and it's, 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 but again, uh, I, I think the visibility is an issue here. Uh, you can find the book, uh, but it's not the sort of thing that uh, has, has, has gotten a lot of attention on its own, uh, even though- Well, I guess what I'd, say to, what I'd say to that, though, Gary, is hopefully one of the things that a process like this does, right, is it allows you to bring attention to these books. I mean, any reader wanting to read The Wall is going to have to search for it right now. I, be- I think it's available digitally in the United States, but it's only been published by HarperCollins India at the moment. Uh, and I know the second book that completes the pairing comes out in July of next of, of 2021. So hopefully by the time it comes out, maybe the pair of books will have found a US publisher. And the dialogue that leads to, well, things like the, you know, the Locus Recommended Reading List and awards and on through the Hugos and such will help get a little bit of attention because that's one of the things that these things do. The real purpose in some ways of these award, of awards and, and end of years, da, 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 is to try and say, well, we know that you were going to go and read N.K. Jemison's The City We Became, and you should, uh-huh. but it's also well worth being aware. You know, It's like when you're reading short, short fiction, for example, which is I spend a lot of my year in, as you know, uh, you, everyone, well, in the science fiction field at least and beyond, was aware of The Hidden Girl and Other Stories by Ken Liu, mm-hmm. which is a terrific collection and follows on from the paper Menagerie and Other Stories, which came out a few years ago. Possibly they're aware of The Best of Jeffrey Ford, which came out from PS Publishing, which is another great book, which came out at the beginning of the year, but somewhat less li- likely to be aware of something like, say, Cherie Renee Thomas's debut mm-hmm. Uh, Nine Bar Blues, which is coming out from Music Publisher, basically, or Music Book Publisher, or Meg Ellison's Big Girl, which came out from P- PM Press. You know, they're not always you know widely seen. So the the things that we're that, that get done with things like Locus's end of the year, like Tor.com when they publish their end of year list, like Strange Horizons when Aqueduct do their really interesting uh, annual run up of things that, that people have been reading and summarize there. It gives all of these books a, a little bit of air and hopefully encourages readers to go out and buy their New Year's reading. I think that's true. And you, and I think, I think you mentioned Elijah Don Johnson. But the other, uh, the other thing which uh, sometimes is easy to overlook, when you're looking at the new, when you're celebrating new and, and, and discovering new writers, are you mentioned M. John Harrison's uh, novel, which I thought was brilliant uh, and, and really disturbing in a way that uh, most mainstreamy kind of science fiction kind of fantasy novels try to be but aren't. But at the same time, there was a very important retrospective collection of short fiction from M. John Harrison, and there was another important retrospective collection of short fiction from um, Christopher Priest, who, for that matter, has a new novel out, which is kind of a clever murder mystery set in his uh, uni- uni- the Dream Arch- Archipelago. So there's, there's a lot yeah. of stuff that's go- going on. And I think when people sometimes complain, they don't, but they probably want to, and they don't know how. Um, I've heard that you we talk about books that are overlooked more than books that are popular. You're right. We have talked about and celebrated books like Nora Jemison's book or or or, or Gibson's book, or for that matter, um, the the Alex Harrow book, which got a lot of good attention. I don't think we spend as much time talking about books that are automatically popular because we don't need to. The last book uh, I looked at the books I reviewed this year. The most recent one, I believe to appear on the New York Times bestseller list uh, was a novel by V.E. Schwab called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which was fine. It's a bestseller. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a generational fantasy about somebody who makes a deal 
that uh, she can live forever, but nobody will remember her. Not an entirely original idea. Performed well. It's an, it's a satisfying book in exactly the ways you expect it to be a satisfying book, which means basically if you know about it, you already know what you need to know about it. Well, I guess so. I mean, we have to be a little careful as commentators and critics, though, because, you know, science fiction, fantasy, horror, genre fiction, it's a spectrum as well. And you don't want to miss what's happening across the whole spectrum. You know, it's like a book like, say, John Scalzi's The Last Last Emperor, which is the end book of his trilogy and which has done extremely well and got sold many copies, been well-reviewed is something that we have to talk about just as much, I think, as we talk about the new William Gibson or an exciting new de- debut novel. Because if we don't, I think we lose some perspective on what's happening in the field. I think, you're right. I think we lose an idea of what's actually important. I think we ignore the, the, the full spectrum of the field at our peril. I mean, there is interesting, worthwhile work being published everywhere, and it's not always the things that we would think. Uh, you know, Pulp House Press is publishing anthologies regularly. Uh, you know, I think every couple, every month. I think um, I know that Bain obviously published many, many mm-hmm. interesting and worthwhile books. I mean, hey, they, they published Tim Powers now, which is not something I would ever have anticipated in all truth. So you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there, and we really, you know, we shouldn't ignore it because the other thing that happens is sometimes. Not too often. I mean, quite often, really, really good books get become popular, and then we haven't read them, and then we're out of that conversation. I'm not suggesting that the, the, the popular books aren't good books. Uh, that the, the, there, there's usually they of, don't need our boost. They, they don't need our boost exactly. I mean, there are books that uh, well, probably I, it may be on the bestseller list by now. A book that came out late this year, the third volume of uh, of Cory Doctorow's um, series, Attack uh, Surface. Attack yeah. Surface, and it's. If you've read the first two books in the series, uh, which you don't really need to have done, but if you read the first two books in the series, you know that he's going to do this really well. He's going to teach you all kinds of things that you didn't know you should be worried about. He's going to scare the pants off of you uh, in in various absolutely realistic ways. And he's going to write uh, an interesting character who is morally compromised. Matter of fact, this is the most morally complex novel Cory Doctorow has written. Um, But it's also one that anybody who knows Cory Doctorow isn't going to be surprised that he could do something this well. Yeah. Well, see, that isn't that the risk of any writer with a long and maturing career that they sometimes they just become less surprising. I mean, for all that the Ministry for the Future, a book that we've both talked about at great length on the mm-hmm. podcast, is a major work from Kim Stanley Robinson. I don't know that you could say that's in any way surprising. I don't think it's meant to be surprising, and I don't think a tax service is meant to be surprising either. I mean, to some extent, these are... Uh, we've happened. We happen now to have chosen two writers who actually definably have missions. There are things they want to do. There are things they are concerned about. There are actions they believe we need to take now. And they're writing novels, which in um, the Victorian era would have been called what do they call them? The novel of not the novel of issues. They were a very specific kind of thing. When Dickens writes Hard Times, for example, about the education system, where he writes th- these are very specific issue-oriented novels. It's a kind of thing that really needs to be done. It's not being done very much at all in mainstream literature. So no, we don't want um, we don't want I don't want let's say Kim Stanley Robbins to be. To, to be writing a sweet Hobbit romance. That's not what he does. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be kind of interested. It'd actually, be interesting but... to see what he does with it. The, only, the, the, one person, the, 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 the other writer who, who's unfortunately, sadly, whose last novel appeared during the year is Gene Wolfe. 
And I can see Gene Wolfe writing a Hobbit romance that would be completely devastating an inch below the surface. But um, I, I, I remember talking about the idea of Gene writing a Star Trek novel, which was- uh, yeah, I know. I had a conversation with him about that once, and and his re- his response was, "I bet you don't think I can do it." And I thought, "I've only oh, no, I bet he could have done it. He could have done, 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 done it. Of course, he could have done it." Um, there's one book where actually I want to mention because you and I don't usually talk much about horror. Mm-hmm. It's not usually something I read a lot of, but more than, I mean, I think there was actually two. There were two horror novels that I heard more about than any others in years. Saga Press published Stephen Graham Jones's The Only Good Indians, right. which I had Paul Garan raving to me about in email at, at one point, and which overwhelmingly has been the most acclaimed horror novel of the year. In several and years, I, I think. Yeah, and is a book to, to definitely seek out, and a great gift for a horror fan near you. Mm. Uh, and the other ones, just let's hit the microphone, Jonathan, it's Clutch Day. Um, the other one is Sylvia Moreno-Garcia's br- really breakout novel, Mexican Gothic, the book that has taken Sil- Sylvia from being a respected writer to one who has a very broad or- and cl- clearly growing audience and who's in a really you know, you know, exciting place in her career. I mean, she had two books out, On Time Shore, also came out earlier this year, and I think there's a new novel coming out next year, I think. But she's, I also see she's just stepped down as an editor of The Dark, which she's been co-editing with Sean Wallace for the last handful of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now, you know, just to focus on her career, the book has been sufficiently successful. So that's great. And both of those books sound like they really do stand out. I think one of the things that those books say also, uh, again, they both, as far as I can tell, done very well. I think Mexican Gothic did make the times. And these are novels uh, that 15 or 20 years ago, no one would have thought could have reached as broad an audience as they have. I mean, essentially, we're talking about diversity. And to some extent, I can get in trouble for saying this, in, in some ways, diversity is mainstream enough now that people who might not have wanted to write um to read uh, Native American horror, of which there has been some, but not nearly enough. And because Stephen Graham Jones has been doing this for a long time, but now here's yeah. a breakout novel, which I have, and I've read the first couple of, he writes really well. I've read his short fiction. And, yeah. and the same thing's true with, with, with Sylvia Marina Garcia, who actually was on our podcast way back when, I believe when Signal to Noise was, was first published. Yes, it was, yeah. And yeah. Uh, again, these are writers who have been working steadily at something which finally hits um, a much larger audience and a much more deserved audience than, than they ever have before. And it's a great kind of story for, for a lot of us. And I ho- I'm hoping more writers will do this. I'm hoping that uh, some of the writers that, that, that you've helped the careers of will suddenly become um, much more widely known. I mean, the name I'm thinking of is Saad Hussein, for example. Yeah, yeah. Terrific writer. Uh, enormously funny, enormously science fictionally complex, um, enormously rooted in his in, 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 in a complex of cultures that is not the cl- complex of cultures that I grew up in, and uh, and clearly capable of writing something that could get that kind of breakout attention you've been talking about. So yeah. one of the things I'm looking forward to, and I think that those two examples you've given, um, along with the growing and continuing success of writers like Nettie Okorafor, indicates to me that there are options available, there, there are futures available for a much more diverse group of writers than there ever have been before. Oh, I think that that's true. I think even for all of the very serious concerns that I have and that I mentioned about the, the publishing industry, which, uh, you know, all of this rests on as well, 
Uh, I am still optimistic about the fiction we see. I think we're seeing some remarkable fiction and some remarkably diverse fiction. You know, it's interesting that in the discussions that we're having about the end of the year, one of the books that keeps coming up at the anthology level is a book that came out from uh, Aurelia Leo Press, which is Dominion, an anthology of speculative fiction from Africa and the African right. diaspora, which is one of several books that are in that kind in 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 a space that's presenting a regional fiction, you know, the best regional fiction from an area. So in this case, it's like from Africa, from the the, the diaspora. Right. And it's, it's an, a, an interesting, diverse book. It's done well. It follows on from things like last year when we had Broken Stars, the Ken Liu book. And, and there was also that, you know, there was the, uh, I forget the publisher's name, but there was the book of Korean fiction that, uh, that was translated last year. You know, there, there was also this year, I mean, Wale Talabi did his African Futurism anthology, which came out on Brittle Paper online. Mm. So there's been a bunch of those kind of things. Um, it's it's been it's been an interesting diverse time, you know. Well, I mean, diversity. I will say, uh, yeah. Go ahead and finish your thought. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say that I will say if we're talking about anthologies for a second, probably the most lauded reprint anthology of the year was the Anne and Jeff and Vandermeer and Jeff Vandermeer's book, The Big Book of Modern Fantasy, following on from the Big Book of pretty much everything everything they've done in the past, from time travel to weird fiction to science fiction, and, and a, all kinds of interesting stuff. So. And an anthology and that, which was pointedly uh, wanting to redefine the history of fantasy in a much more broadly multicultural way than it traditionally had been, as, as the science I mean, fiction anthology. On, on one, one thing that made the whole year more confusing was at, at short fiction levels was I think I saw three separate uh, projects based on the new Decameron, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I know that the New York Times uh, put together a special issue that has become a published anthology through, through Scribner's of the of the, the Decameron project. Uh, Joe Walton oversaw publishing a hundred pieces of fiction through her uh, new Decameron through Patreon, and there's another one. And the other thing is that right now, I mean, we talk about ideas going through science fiction. If short fiction is the lab that we talk about it being. It's robots. Robots and avatars are the absolute number one thing. And it's really strangely ironic because it can't have been affected by the pandemic because it predates the I pandemic. Uh, uh, but, you know, there were there was Anne Vandermeer's avatars. There was my made to order. There was avatar Indian science fiction. There has been science fiction stories through uh, with robots and avatars in pretty much every major venue that I can think of all year long. Well, I was thinking uh, because it showed up on Twitter, I was reading Alec Neville Ali's Twitters. And there, there are a fair amount of Avatar and robot stories in your year's best as well, including Alex, I don't remember the title of his story, but it's a wonderful subterranean At the world. fall. At the fall, yeah. Um, and so, so that seems to be, yeah, a, a trending topic. Um, I was going to mention, uh, when we use terms like diversity, um, it's, it's a term with many different meanings. And I think that when you mention, for example, African futurism, and Nnedi Okorafor has absolutely convinced me that African futurism and Afrofuturism are two different things. The coinage of the term Afrofuturism 20-some years ago now really referred to African-American fiction that dealt with science fiction. It was not necessarily African futurism. Uh, and so she's talking about African-based futurism. I don't. I, I, I said this actually in my review of... Um, the African Futurism Anthology. I have no problem with Afrofuturism referring to what it refers to or with African Futurism 
referring to what I do have some problems with the term futurism because I think that really constrains what science fiction does and not all this stuff is science fiction anyway. Uh, yeah, and I think it also doesn't necessarily actually reflect what happens. I mean, when I read, um, you know, the you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. when I've read some of the Afrofuturism projects that have been published over the last year, quite often the future element is not really there. I mean, it is a yeah, exactly. broader term for for science fiction. Dominion, for example, which is speculative fiction from the from Africa the, the diaspora, is not particularly focused exclusively on futurish things. So it's more complicated than that. But. Yeah, and the term futurism itself feel, it sounds like an old fashioned term to me, doesn't it? I mean, it's, futurism is what they talked about in the fifties and sixties. There was a magazine called The Futurist. Futurism was popular mechanics showing us our jetpacks. It just strikes me as an arc. But well, no, I, don't think we should be, I don't think we should be too surprised about about the future element, though, Gary. I mean, uh, you've just we've just about just about made it, made it through a year where we began to doubt how much of the future we were going to have. Just well, about. That. And there's the other thing which I could <laughs> not, which I have not argued before. Futurism before it even became a thing in uh, in. in in, in, in sort of pop psychology and uh, Alvin Toffer stuff, futurism was a movement in Italian art around the time of the First World War, which involved not necessarily new technologies, but involved absolutely rejecting everything in the past and starting over from now. And that that idea of futurism, which I don't think is what lies behind either Afrofuturism or African futurism, is is an interesting one. But it does reflect something that I think writers um, in in all kinds of literary communities that traditionally had not dealt with science fiction, they are to some extent declaring rebellion. I mean, to some, if you go back to the early days of Samuel R. Delaney, for example, uh, he was consciously broadening science fiction and moving beyond what science fiction had been. I think N.K. Jemison is doing that today. I think Nadia Korofor is doing that today. I think uh, some of the um, writers we see from uh, from Asia, China, India, Japan, and so forth, are are deliberately reacting against the realistic traditions of of their cultures, of their literary cultures, I should say. And this is an idea which is not entirely mine. It came up in the introduction since I did last year. I read the Korean anthology. I read a couple of Chinese anthologies, South Asian anthology, uh, an Israeli anthology. Almost without exception, the introductions to these books talked about how the literary culture of our of our country of our nation has looked down upon fantasy, even though they would then go on to point out there's a huge tradition of fantastic literature that goes back thousands of years. So there's there's kind of puzzling attitude. I want to I want to add another meaning to the term diversity, um, not just cultural diversity or linguistic diversity or geographical diversity, but diversity within these different. Um, uh, worlds. One of the most interesting novels that I read last year, and I keep thinking about it not because it was one of the best novels, but because it was interesting, was one of Ken Liu's translations of a Chinese novel by Hao Jingfang, I hope I'm close to that, called Vagabonds. And Vagabonds doesn't read at all like a Sui Lu novel. Uh, it d- doesn't read at all like um, Stanley Chan's uh, uh, Novel, waste tide. Waste tide. Uh, so, so we we had this idea that uh, we were getting to develop this idea that Chinese science fiction was either huge scale space opera kinds of things that Sushin Lu was doing at least in the second couple of volumes, 
um, or really high-tech dystopian near-future uh, ecological parables uh, like Wastetide. And what I saw with Vagabonds was a novel which is a, a bunch of kids coming to terms with their own cultures, whether they're on Mars or on Earth. They've been on Earth, they're back on Mars. It's a lot of, a lot of philosophizing in it. It's a very young person's novel. It's a very adolescent novel. It's full of dorm room philosophy. And it occurred to me, this is a kind of novel I've read before, but I haven't read it from a from a Chinese yeah. perspective before. And so I'm, yeah. I'm, that novel, more than any other novel, made me realize there's a much wider, I, I shouldn't say that uh, more than any other novel, but not more than other short stories. There's a much wider variety of science fiction and fantasy within China or within India or within Kenya or within uh, you know any other country that then we usually think of we were kind of uh, you know so pleased that we finally got to see some Pakistani science fiction yep. we don't realize not all Pakistani writers are writing about the same thing no not at all no and I mean on one hand it's, it's logically obvious and you know it's also not terribly surprising that the first things that you see come through from uh, a, a trans you know through translation happen not to be the most indicative of what's being published in the country, but simply the ones that are the best, the, the, the highest selling or the ones that are assessed to be the most likely to be successful in translation in this country, so, uh, yeah, in English. So it takes a while to get a better picture mm. as more work is translated. And certainly with Chinese science fiction over the last decade, we're seeing more and more being translated. We're, you know, we're seeing, we're, we're get, getting a more robust picture of the variety of science fi of science fiction written and published in China. We're seeing through you know, publishing whatever else that you know, a broader idea of the diversity of speculative fiction in the in you know the uh, subcontinent and through Africa, and that will only grow over time. Or with even the Let same writer, even within the same writer, because another interesting book of the year, which is not on, it's not going to be in my best of the year list, but it was fun. Was Sushin Lu's a, a, a little sort of whimsical book of his called of Ants and Dinosaurs, which is about a kind of uh, cultural arrangement that ants and dinosaurs made with each other. It's, 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 it's fables. They read like uh, Italo Calvino fables from you know, 60 years ago, completely unlike uh, the three-body problem, you know, the, 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 the large-scale hard SF, the kind of post-Asimovian SF that he uh, is associated with. And, and the idea that, okay, this is a... Um, sort of light, whimsical, really children's story more than anything else. And I didn't know he could do that. I guess I had no reason to know that he could or that he wanted to. But the fact is, that sort of thing, you're right, um, indicates that we're not only beginning to learn the science fiction that comes from other societies and cultures around the world, but we're beginning to learn that uh, there's an enormous amount of variety within those yeah, bodies yeah. Anyway, we're at our hour, Gary, so we should probably bring this to its kind of semi-conclusion. We'll probably drift a little bit in, in order to get there with some degree of grace, but still, let's see. Um, quickly, fairly quickly, if that's the year we've been through, and I mean, I would summarize as being an incredibly difficult year to, to live through for those, you know, mm. we've lost a lot of, very sadly, we've lost a lot of people along the way that we, and, you know, that leaves a mark. There's been a lot of interesting work published. We have a year stretching out, you know, sort of uh, in front of us. I mean, I think many of us are going to get to sort of a minute past midnight on New Year's Eve, and we'll be marking ourselves safe from 2021. <laughs> um, what have I just done? No, okay. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll be getting into tw in, into tw 2021 itself, and there will be a question of, 
uh, what's it going to be like? What are we expecting? What are we hoping for? Do we? I mean, are we actually making any plans? I mean, there's a lot of books to look forward to, and I don't think we'll go down that path and talk about that. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I'm hoping to see is that uh, we will be healthier and safer, obviously, and that's the, the most important thing, but that we'll maybe see some moves towards kind of greater diversity in publishing in terms of business on the business side, and that we'll see a continuation to the range of diversity in the field we've seen. And also I would hope um, a, 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 a growth of what as well, of really robust science fiction. Because, because I think that, so, you know, that's something we've seen less of this year. Um, I, I think you're probably right in terms of more traditional kinds of science fiction. I, th- I think the other thing that what I always look forward to, and I'll be doing it this year is what I don't know is going to be there is what's, is, is the unexpected. I mean, I, my, my candidate for the unexpected book of the year this past year is Paranasi. Um, mm-hmm. And nobody, people knew that she'd been working on something. Nobody knew what it was going to be like. The title came out. The title only sort of vaguely even hints at kind of the physical uh, layout of the, uh, of the novel. And and I'm, I was pleased to see that, frankly, more than I would have been pleased to see uh, Jonathan Strange ten years later. Um, I, I, I'm perfectly happy if she does that. Um, the other thing, which is always reassuring, and most reassuring thing this year was Alex Harrow's second novel. Because when somebody writes a terrific novel like The Ten Thousand Doors of January, you wonder is is the next one going to you know be more of the same, which would be fine. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be not quite as imaginative, which would not be fine. Is it going to be completely different and just as good in a completely different way? That's what she delivered. So I want to see new writers continue to do really interesting, unexpected work. I guess I guess my value as a reader, not necessarily as a reviewer, but probably as a reviewer as well, is that I really like being surprised. Yeah, yeah. As I said at the, the top of the podcast, I think this is the 178th episode this is our 26th fortnightly episode, as originally promised at the beginning of the year. So I think it's fair to say that we've delivered the 26 episodes that we planned to and promised to our mm-hmm. listeners that we would. And we've also given you a little bit of extra, I hope, that has been interesting and of worth to you. It's certainly been a critical part of my journey through the pandemic, the the 150 odd people that we spoke to uh, separately and together. I think that that's been a, an incredible part of part of the year. And I think it'd be fair to say, no matter what may have been said before, we genuinely have no idea what we're going to do in 2021. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll read what comes at us and go where we're allowed to go. Yes. I think this is the beginning of the hiatus. <laughs> and, and you know, you may or may not see us between the official return sometime in January, but uh, I guess we'll, get an, uh, we'll work out a date and tell you when we will be back. But until then, I think we would both wish all of our listeners and everybody everywhere a safe, happy, and healthy holiday period. And until we return, whenever that may be, this has been, once again, the Cood Street Podcast.